Hello, everyone. Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager, where the knowledge is timeless and you are the Voyager. Today's guest is time traveler and Mars Explorer team member, Andrew DiBajago. Now, Andrew helped America achieve time travel as a team member in DARPA's Project Pegasus from 1968 through 1972. For those of you not familiar with the term DARPA, it stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. So, in that capacity, he was the first American child to teleport via Tesla teleportation in 1968. The mission was to lead the campaign to urge the U.S. government to declassify and deploy its teleportation capability so that this life-advantaging technology would be used by humanity to achieve sustainability in the 21st century and beyond. He then served as early Mars Explorer team member in the CIA's Mars Jump Room program from 1980 to 1984, where he jumped to Mars and back via jump rooms located in New York City and El Segundo, California. That mission was to lead the effort to research, disclose, and educate the public about life on Mars and lobby for the enactment of a treaty under the UN to protect the Red Planet from visitation exploration, habitation, and colonization by humans from Earth. Fasten your cosmic seatbelts and join me, your host, the Timeless Voyager. Welcome to the Timeless Voyager, Andrew. Howdy, Bruce. It's good to be back with you. Now... We talked a little bit about preparation for this program, but I am very excited to hear what you have in mind because a lot of people are not familiar with you, and those who are familiar with you, I think, will be surprised that we're kind of going to look at some of the things they've heard and hear some alternate possibilities that you've come up with. So, go ahead. Well... I've always been mindful of the possibility that something paranormal or non-ordinary actually led to the causation of the individual and group experience uh, in Project Mars. I mean, for one thing, I always found it curious that I and the four gentlemen I brought forward, William Brett Stillings, Bernard Mendez, William White Crow, um, which was the shamanic names um, chosen in adulthood by Bill Paris as I knew him when I was in the um, the spring spring of my uh, fourth grade year which was spring of 1972 or excuse me 71 and uh, Dr. Ralph Kennedy Johnston Sr. Ken Johnston all had contact with the small greys in childhood. And I always had the suspicion that maybe the maybe the Mars Jump Room program was something induced by extraterrestrials. Um, I also found it extremely odd that even though the brilliant Howard Hughes was sort of the director of Project Mars. He was aware of how the the jump room technology, the aeronautical repositioning chambers, were working, by which we could enter an elevator at 999 North Sepulveda in El Segundo, California, and be on the red planet in anywhere from like 10 to, to, to 20 minutes. The astronomically vast distances that were, you know, crossed during that short trip, just to me, it's always seemed possibly, or, you know, probably out of the ambit of the way we were going or even going at all. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 
millions of miles in about as much time as it would take you to put your coffee in the microwave and heat it. When Mars was as far away from Earth as it can be in its two-year irregular orbit around the sun, it was taking us about 20 minutes. Oh, okay. Then at, yeah, then as Mars was drawing closer to the Earth, we could go in a shorter time. It's like eight minutes. And that's why during the later jumps, we had more astronauts in the room, in the in the uh, the ARC, the Aeronautical Repositioning Chamber, which really looked for the most part like a conventional elevator. But it had a dual purpose, a dual use, which is that it could somehow morph from a box into a cylinder and then back into a conventional box, as in any modern um, elevator, and get back and forth between a planet that is quite, I mean, it's the closest one to our planet, but it's still very far. Now let's just let's just slow down for one moment because I want to back up. Um, let's explain to the audience why someone in or how someone who is in fourth grade as a child is in a project like this in the first place. Well, I wasn't in the fourth grade with Project Mars. I was age nineteen to twenty-two. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I I thought okay, fine. Yeah, that's common confusion, I think. Why did they send kids to Mars? They didn't. But they did send us when we were in our late teens. I was 19 when I began going in July of 81. And then um, by August of 84, when I stopped going, I was 22. Now, before you go any further, so what you were talking about was the teleportation or the time travel when you were in fourth grade? What was that group you spoke about right in the beginning of the interview? Well, that was, there were eight modalities of time travel that DARPA's Project Pegasus subjected me to when I was a child, okay. between 1968 and 72, uh, from roughly age 6 to 11. But the, the we don't even really know what the technology of Project Mars was. We've been calling it a jump room. It was known as an arc or aeronautical repositioning chamber. But it was getting such a vast distance, both to and then back from Mars, that one of the issues that's always bothered me is, how was that done? Hmm. I mean, it, right. it was a huge distance. It's almost as if they had found a way to fold space. It was certainly a nauseating experience, I can tell you that. Um, you know, I had a cast iron stomach, so I could bear up, but when the morphing from a box into a cylinder shape inside the elevator was at its zenith, it was very common that somebody would actually throw up. Uh, It was a nauseating experience. There was no shame in that because it was a very common experience when we were inside the, the jump room. And yet we were never told, hey, this is working by doing this. We spent the rest of our lives not knowing how they had done this incredibly difficult journey in such a short period of time. It was so far that they shouldn't have been able to technically do that. But whatever it was, it was classified. I think it may have been derived from those UFO sightings where the UFO UFO is seen to sort of morph in the sky. Hmm. So whatever UFOs are doing, uh, when we see that, they had mastered Which doesn't surprise me, because Howard Hughes was a pretty brilliant person, eccentric, but very brilliant, a genius of the first Mm -hmm. order. Yeah. And um, but at the same time, when I would look back at my college years, which made it the time I was going, there was evidence that it was physical transport. For example, I was attending uh, Roger Daniel McGrath's American West history uh, course history of the American West, which essentially just coincidentally led to the founding of the History Channel hmm. uh, from something Roger did for A&E that then became the History Channel. That's the origin of the History Channel. And uh, it was a great course. Roger's a brilliant historian. They made it very entertaining and so forth. And um, 
I had just come back from Mars, which was quite commonplace. I was basically during those years living in two places, the UCLA campus and El Segundo, because I was going to Mars and then, and then Mars. And a co-ed sitting next to me said, oh, what are you doing working construction to get through school? And I said, why do you say that? And she goes, that, that dust on your boots. And I go, oh, no, that's not from a construction job, even though they were construction boots. Um, that that dust is from Mars. <laughs> and she said, come on. <laughs> and I said, no, really, I'm going to Mars. Right. <laughs> and, I, and, she, and she said, how? And I said, I drive down to El Segundo, and I enter this elevator at 999 North Sepulveda in El Segundo. And then shortly thereafter, I'm on the red planet. And she believed me. And she said, uh, I always knew they were doing stuff like that. Now, if that code is listening, please contact me because that's more evidence, which I've shared a lot of, that I'm telling the truth. And I am. But the bottom line is we were never told how they were doing that. So when I thought of the ET contact of all the five gentlemen have come forward that we know served, I thought maybe it was induced some way. Maybe we were brought in to some alternate timeline or time space situation where the ETs who had contacted us earlier in our lives were inducing something to have us experience going to the red planet. I mean, it's, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that that, in fact, was what was going on. But I don't mean a simulation, because where did the red dust on my boots come from? That came from Mars. So basically what you're saying is that even though you're postulating this, you also have to look at the evidence. Yeah, I mean, the answer can be not either or, but both. Right, exactly. I mean, both could be in, true. In, in, yeah, induced by a species more capable to do things in the universe than we are. Mm. But I'm actually sure it happened because, you know, where would the red dust of my boots have come from? Well, of course, you know, when you when you tell these stories, the one thing I think about is that if a person, first of all, a person needs to have a willing suspension of disbelief in the first place, not because it's impossible or even if it's probable, but because really what we know historically, and that's what's important in what I'm about to say, what we know historically is that things that were impossible 50 years ago or 100 years ago are commonplace now. For example, I always use the example of of the, of the famous comic strip Dick Tracy and that watch that he had where he could see and talk to people on a little telephone. In, in those days, that was fantasy. That's only 50 years ago. That was fantasy. Now, it's so commonplace that no one would even be able to live, probably, without a cell phone, without having that ability. Anyway, I just I just wanted to make that statement and there's also the problem of what I call obligatory skepticism. People have been induced primarily by the government, but also by popular culture, to not believe anything new. And that's not science. Uh, I think the government is actually worried about the degree to which it dissuaded Americans from knowing so much about how the, the world, the universe, really is. And they're now trying to kind of introduce a soft disclosure program to to reverse that right to get everybody ready <laughs> so that they don't collapse and be in hyster hysterics and chaos you know but when people talk about disclosure and the need for it i say i say wasn't that disclosure when the front pages of the new york times and the washington post had photographs of those nine flying saucers that were seen above our nation's capital mm -hmm. in July of 1952. I mean, we've already had disclosure. Right. And there's such a sort of cosmic unwillingness for Americans and other citizens of the world to accept the universe as it is, that I think when they did that sort of program of inducing skepticism, 
that was not a good idea because we have to know about the universe that we inhabit. Well, yeah. And, you know, the other problem, of course, is that people also have developed quite a short, short attention span. And I don't mean just short, meaning, you know, a few minutes. I'm talking about short, meaning like, you know, 10 years, uh, 20 years. It's almost like if, if something happened 20 years ago, there's an entire generation that not only doesn't know what happened, but don't even care. Don't care to know. And if I mention anything that happened during the Vietnam era, people don't know what I'm talking about. You know, Tonkin Gulf incident. Right. And so forth. So, you know, the, the Tet Offensive. So um, let's let's go back for a moment uh, again, in the, because I want to make sure that, because I saw that I got confused, and, I, and I've talked to you many times, so if I can get confused, I'm sure other people can. So in the past, you have told me that in uh, there's two issues here. We have, the first one is time travel. The second one is Mars. Right. So in the time travel, you were in a program, and I don't know which one it was, whether that was DARPA or the CIA program. Which one was that? The Project Pegasus was the U.S. time-space program okay. under DARPA. Okay. During the emergence of time travel in the U.S. defense technical community. All right. Mars kind of calved off, you know, a decade later. Some participants, like Bernard Mendez, who had a special relationship of some kind with the U.S. Defense Department, have claimed that Mars was just an extension of Project Pegasus. Mm -hmm. Now, let me just say that I don't necessarily believe that. I think it was just a multi-agency DOD project, probably to get people on Mars, because during Apollo 17, we were chased off the moon by extraterrestrials. They literally took over the telecom facility of, of uh, Apollo 17 and basically told us not to return. And that explains pretty well, I think, why after going to the moon for, um, for three years, in which six missions were launched successfully, of course, Apollo 13 um, did not uh, achieve its, its, uh, its goal of landing on the moon. Um, and only 12 Americans ended up walking on the moon. 11 of them, military officers, and one civilian, Harrison Schmidt, a geologist from New Mexico. So that's, I believe, why we would be going to Mars by roughly the end of the 1970s. We've been chased off the moon, and they wanted to grab the high frontier. Now, in the telling of Project Mars, it sort of got colorated by the assertion that it was the CIA's Mars jump room program. That is not really true. There were some CIA people attached to the project, but there were Army people, Navy, which I was assigned to, uh, and so forth. It was really a multi-agency Defense Department program. And everybody was attached to one government agency or military branch or another. There wasn't a, a huge CIA involvement. There was, for example, Courtney Hunt of the CIA. He'd been CIA since the Korean conflict. Uh, my dad was essentially a Defense Department engineer with CIA connections, but he had connections to basically every U.S. agency and military branch. So I believe that the, the Mars program had connections to Project Pegasus, but it was really a sidebar in which they were thinking, we've got to get people on Mars, you know, Americans on Mars, now that we can't get on our own, our own moon, the moon. So let's launch a crash program to find a way to get there, not in, instantaneously, but certainly in, in, in a very short time. And they did. In other words, they weren't trying to discover every last thing about time travel. They had developed and operationalized eight modalities of time travel in Pegasus. Yeah, let's 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 go over those if you don't mind. I'll, I'll post the uh, the picture up here, and we can go through them uh, real real quickly. You have uh, the first one is called remote viewing psychic time travel. Maybe you could explain that one. Right. Well, it's always been said by 
Hal Puttoff, Russell Tard, the late Ingo Swan, that remote viewing, where you psychically try to see something at a distance and describe it, emerged at SRI, that Stanford Research Institute, in 1972. I say au contraire because I was remote viewing for the Office of Naval Intelligence in 1969. When, for example, the son of the commander of the Pacific Fleet, John Sidney McCain Sr., was shot down over Vietnam and jailed, I was asked by the Office of Naval Intelligence to see if John McCain was in the uh, building in the so-called Hanoi Hilton, which is one of the POW compounds there. Right. And so where was he in the building? And they said to us one Tuesday morning in fall of 1969, listen, we know you kids are very psychic. For example, you'll you'll go to bed at night and have dreams that come true. So here's a picture of John. It didn't tell us John McCain. And here's a building we think he might be kept in by bad people somewhere in the, else in the world. They didn't tell it was the North Vietnamese or Viet Cong in, in North Vietnam. And we want you kids to go home and tonight ask yourselves um, if he is in this building and if so, where in the building. I think that was for the purpose of gathering intelligence so that they could either go and destroy that compound to kill um, Lieutenant Commander McCain, later Senator McCain of Arizona. And if not, to maybe blow a hole in the wall of the, of the prison and uh, and rescue him. Hmm. Now, what I saw was that Senator McCain was being kept as he went down this dimly lit hallway with just bare bulbs illuminating. There was what was called a tiger cage, and he was being kept on the left side of the hallway there in a tiger cage in which he couldn't even stand up. I also saw him being seriously tortured. I mean, really heinous torture. For example, he would be suspended from his elbows until his shoulder sockets popped out of place. He endured hell on earth. And uh, so I was very excited when the the next uh, Tuesday morning, when the lieutenant commander from the Office of Naval Intelligence asked us to report what remote viewing we had, successes we had had in the previous week, looking for John being kept by bad people somewhere else in the world. And then uh, we did some other sort of remote viewing tasks. Like we went up to Hoboken, New Jersey, and about 30 bodies of Viet- Vietnam combat fatalities from this country were laid out on the tarmac. And I and one of the other children pointed to three of the, of, of the bodies. It was sort of like the... The front one in the third row and two over in the middle of the first row. And we said that one, that one, and that one. I mean, we were really good psychics. Now, what we were doing was pointing out the Vietnam combat fatalities that had been used to ship heroin into the United States in the conspiracy to do that that was known as the Golden Triangle. So they wanted to see if... if if uh, psychic children could identify which uh, of our dead from Vietnam were being ex- exploited in this way. So those were two of the military remote viewing programs that we did. As I like to say, the, the children who became time travelers for DARPA's Project Pegasus began as remote viewers for the Office of Naval Intelligence. We were small mediums at large. Okay, that's how we got into the program. They said, let's not just use these kids as psychics. Let's send them in time and space. And they did. Well, that goes pretty well with number two, which is out-of-body astral travel uh, to different dimensions. Exactly. We They would put us on our back on a tabletop-like device, which had sort of a spinning stanchion on it, and they would spin us with our heads towards the center of the circle and we would look up at sort of at this uh this spiral image from the popular show of that time which was um 
I'm not recalling it. Um, I'd help you out, and I I know what you're talking about. There was there was of course the Twilight Zone, which was not the one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a competitor. Twilight Zone had an image of like a spiral, right? uh, Form that was to kind of space people out. Kind of a hypnotic effect. Right. Now, what they found is that if you spun somebody while looking up at a at a uh, a twilight zone t- type of spiral mm-hmm. and just relaxed your focus, you could readily pop out of your body. In fact, after we had that, I would be waking up towards, I don't know, you know, five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning, and I would leave my body and travel around my house and out into the area around our house. So we really got expert essentially at astral travel. We were able to leave our bodies. And the first time I did that, I was then questioned by a facilitator from our school district. Her name was Stephanie Bindis. Miss hmm. Bindis had been a an army nurse in the Korean conflict or um, Vietnam. And she said, okay, she got a number two pencil and a blank legal pad and said, okay, Andy, what did you see? And I said, well, I was traveling along, you know, through time and space with everything beyond me um, speeding forward and everything below me speeding back. And I got to this black object that was sort of like, almost like a... uh, a train track or a, an overcrossing of, of a train, one of those you know dark metal objects. But when I did, I couldn't go any further. And Miss Bendis said, "Yes, others are reporting that. We think it's the infrastructure pop- propagating the hologram in which we find ourselves. We're calling it the Matrix." So this is an example how these advanced Defense Department <laughs> programs took factual elements and dropped them into the media because the matrix trilogy would not be released for something like 29 years. Right. But DOD inside the inner recesses of project Pegasus were already using that terminology. That's what she said. All right. So then we come up to the uh, Montauk chair. Right. The Montauk chair was one of the only U S time travel devices that was reverse engineered from an alien craft. What it was, was the way that the extraterrestrial pilot would be able to not bump into anything in space with catastrophic uh, outcome by seeing what was ahead of them. So what they found is when they took this, this particular kind of viewing device to, to pilot an, an AT craft, and they put a psychic child in that device, we would go to subjective moments in our futures. So from thereafter, even to this day, I've had these marked uh, deja vu experiences by seeing moments in my own subjective future in the Montauk chair. The chronovisor, which I think everyone has heard a little bit about, but you can't hear enough about that one. Right. It's also been heralded in reports of Project Looking Glass, but I doubt the historicity of a Project Looking Glass because uh, Project Pegasus was working with the chronovisor. That emerged at the Catholic University of Milan under the Vatican musicologists and professors Pellegrino Ernetti and Augustino Gemelli. And what they were doing was studying the harmonic patterns in Gregorian chants to see why Gregorian chants have special qualities like healing properties and and spiritual resonance and so forth. And when they were altering a uh, a microphone to split the signals of the chants, something that uh, Father Gemelli's father said to him in childhood when he would call Father. Jamelli, uh, my little zucchini. And they thought, oh my God, we're, we, we have a window to the past. So they got with the famous and prominent uh, and U.S. aligned uh, Italian physicist Enrico Fermi. And with Fermi, by 1952, 
they had like a flat television screen chronovisor, il chronovisor in Italian. But by uh, when I was brought into the program that formed around these and other time travel devices in 1968, but I was exposed to the chronovisors in 1970, that flat screen television, like sort of two-dimensional chronovisor, hmm. had been developed further by Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey, after the Vatican gave the technology to DARPA. And I was asked to stand on a stage when a cubicle hologram of hologrammatic light was brought down around me. Hmm. When it was, I would go to that plan time and place. That's why I've opposed the widely popularized notion of Project Looking Glass. The chronovisor wasn't just a looking glass. It was a device to go somewhere in time and space. It was a time machine. And um, I went many places during those years in the chronovisor. I even went back to advise to uh, Brooklyn Heights to advise General George Washington in August of 1776 to retreat his troops from New York Harbor. And uh, so the, the chronovisor was really a major part of the program, as important as the Tesla teleporter. Because in the case of a teleporter, if you went back in the past, beyond the time of the provenance of that device, you would be stuck in time. You know, so we were a group of children um, watching Lost in Space but we were hoping and praying that we wouldn't be lost in time. And that's why they developed further and further as devices like the chronovisor, because when the hologram that, you know, powered the chronovisor effect collapsed, we didn't have to take a similar device back to the present. We just were in the present. The, the, the technology, you know, the hologram collapsed and we were back in uh, the Performing Arts Center under construction in Morristown, New Jersey. Hmm. All right. The uh, you've talked about. You might as well just quickly say something about the Tesla teleporter. The Tesla teleporter was derived from paperwork that the legendary Serbian-American uh, Im immigrant uh, physicist uh, Nikola Tesla left in his paperwork upon dying in January of 1943. The paperwork just said energetic array. But when they, when they built that device, one of the technicians at uh, Curtis Wright in Woodridge, New Jersey, was being constructed just on the shop floor of uh, Building 68, went through the, the armatures of the device, the booms, and rather to, to grab a, uh, a screwdriver on the other side of the shop. And when he did, he fell through time and space and popped out somewhere in Africa. And the locals thought, my God, this guy may, must be a, a god of some kind. But it was just a technician from New Jersey. And, uh, and then he, when he you know, did everything he could to get home, he got home like, six weeks or six months later. And when he stepped back into that lab in building 68 at Curtis Wright, his supervisor actually collapsed. <laughs> he thought his colleague had been disintegrated right. by whatever Tesla had built. So they realized it was a teleporter. Hmm. And so the first experiment in using it to send somebody intentionally was asking three Navy enlisted personnel to do so. And unfortunately, they had set it in a way where those uh, Navy enlisted personnel asphyxiated because there wasn't enough oxygen. So they were, hmm. they were working out complications like that. Now, there were many reasons why they used children with the, chrono, with the uh, teleporter and, for that matter, the chronovisor. But one of the reasons they used children in both devices is because we were being trained as the first chrononauts that in the future would have been trained from childhood. So we needed to learn both of those technologies because there was going to be a lot of that in our childhood. And then when we were, for example, sent 
to the Navy Academy after high school. And that would be used as a pretext for involving us in future time travel activities. I mean, if I had agreed to go to Annapolis after high school, I wouldn't be waging a truth campaign about what Project Pegasus did. I would presumably still be time traveling. Hmm. Uh, Then you have one about the Stargate, the advanced teleporter. Yeah, it was was a big anvil-shaped device. It was on the basketball court at the Cerritos Cultural Center in Cerritos, New Mexico. And we would get a deep, deep breath and run up this ramp through the middle center uh, of, of the device. And we would run through an aperture about the width of like a modern telephone booth of that era. Of course, we have a few these days because we all have our cell phones. And we would leap through that and we'd have a teleporting like experience that would last not several seconds but about 30 seconds the specific place i was going to uh with the stargate was the year 2045 to pick up uh microfilm summaries sort of data scrolls of events occurring between the early 1970s and the mid 2040s Hmm. so I, i did have some insight as to slight changes that would exist by then uh, but I, 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 we only found out that it was 2045 because some technicians from 2045 came back in time. Well, how long? How space. long were you there? Not long, right? You said what, 30 seconds? Or no, I, I would get there in 30 seconds. Okay, I'd have to go inside the building and get the data scrolls and bring them back. So, hmm. um, but there was there was a here. limit. There was a time limit for you, right? Well, no, there was air there, but I did notice that there was less, you know, healthy air there. Um, so a lot of us may want to invest in concentrators. Um, I think something is going to happen environmentally that will, to some extent, lessen the quality of, of our air supply. So we're only like, we're only about 20 years away from that. Right. And I was also shown that by 2045, people are regularly doing things like getting into an elevator in one building and then stepping out of that elevator in, in another building. So the jump room becomes uh, commercialized? Pretty much. At least, you know, um, a part of the civic infrastructure. Hmm. All right, then we're at uh, Plasma Confinement chamber right the plasma confinement chamber was a lucite chamber that was sort of rectangular but you know a fourth dimensional space it was about the width of half the size of a modern tennis court and about 14 feet high Hmm. i would be asked to go through a door on the far right side of the chamber And I was told that, Andy, when you walk down to the sort of beautiful opalescent colors that are swirling around on the far side of the chamber, you might be kind of jolted because what you'll feel is kind of a trap door sensation. And I would feel like I was falling. But unlike the straight shot we would have in the Tesla teleporter, this kind of... um, transit would be more like the the one that we see in what the bleep do we know it was going kind of up and down and over and my my hat was ripped off and my shoes and one of my socks it was a very um irregular trip to the past Hmm. and then i would just be spit out of that not the chamber but but the uh, the mortal tunnel being produced by the chamber itself. And so, for example, that's how I was sent to Gettysburg on November 19th of 1863 to go into town and, and see uh, President Lincoln give his famous address, the Gettysburg Address. And there it was photographed in the so-called Josephine Cobb image of Lincoln at Gettysburg. 
yeah, in the we, future that'll be known as uh, the uh, the Josephine Cobb image of Andy and Abe. <laughs> right, we have that. We're gonna we're gonna look at that one. Um, and last but not least, jump rooms, which you've spent a lot of time talking about, but just so the people know that it's actually part of those modalities. Yeah, I mean, there was something like it being introduced on Pegasus, but it was pretty much carrying uh, documents in a time-urgent way or, you know, technical devices in a time-urgent way between, for example, Washington, D.C. and Los Alamos. But this shows you how fast American technology has been moving. Only, you know, what, eight years later... Well, actually, no, it was in, still in the 70s. Six or seven years later, it was moving people hmm. from our country to Mars. So there was a rapid expansion of these technologies in the 1970s. That's now, where we're all st- still living in the 70s. Right. So that was so my, my my next question was going to be, what what I mean, did they just drop the programs or are they just so far underground or? What's going on? Or do you know anything about what what is happening with these programs? I, I do know that around 1973-74, one of the uh, Project Pegasus personnel had a heart attack coming into work. And therefore, the reporting inside the uniquely <laughs> clandestine uh, culture of the program fell apart. And everybody in the program sort of you know, went into the woodwork, but then it was rebuilt because in 1971, we had a quantum excursion where we arrived in New Mexico in 1991. So, and, and they explained kids, um, we, we, we've, we've achieved a little bit more, but we've lost a little bit of knowledge about teleportation. So your trip back to night, New Jersey in 19, 19- 71 is going to be a little bit tough, and it was. So they, they, my, my point there is it lost some knowledge and some capability, but but certainly by the early 90s, it was rebuilding it. Because it's hard for me to believe, well, you know, <laughs> that they're not using this stuff all the time. I mean, who would know? If they, if they could keep it quiet then, I mean, they could keep it quiet now. That's my opinion. Well, one of the reasons I was speaking out is because I knew that they were often doing reporting inside Project Pegasus just verbally, you know, in person or on the phone or whatever, but usually as much in person as possible. I was concerned that there would have been very little written down. Uh, Dr. Harold M. Agnew, who was the director of the program, once told my dad, Raymond F. who was a project principal, as was, of course, Dr. Agnew, that he shouldn't even keep any restaurant receipts from the program to avoid creating a paper trail of who was in the program. You know, my dad would obviously be keeping it for the individuals so they could be repaid for tax purposes and so forth, mm-hmm. as is done even to this day in, in many companies. And I, I, I still am convinced that maybe the program has largely gone into the sands of time because there was such reporting. That's why the program fell apart in the early 70s. And we, we know at least by the, the late 70s, they were using the ARC, the Aeronautical Repositioning Chamber, mm. to send Americans to Mars. So I'm not really concerned too much that there was a fatal collapse of the program, but they did lose some knowledge. And I think that's because Project Pegasus was so important and so sensitive they simply wanted to write down as little as possible. And that's always a danger of forgetting things, of losing capabilities or knowledge. Now, I know that, that I kind of got you off on a tangent when we talked about the eight modalities. Um, were there any other things that you, I mean, I'm sure you have plenty of things you'd like to talk about, and we do have time. I just want people to know that, in fact, the whole program was within the, the, you know, ordinary and discernible and now largely known history from World War II to, let's say, 25 years later. I mean, 
1945, when World War II ended, to 1970s, a quarter century, 25 years. And there were different advances between that period, but certainly 1970 would mark the year when sort of all of these technologies were fully operational. I wasn't brought into Project Pegasus to see if these devices worked. I was brought into Project Pegasus to learn what it was like to use these devices, and I did. And there were certain convolutions and paradoxes of time and space. So, for example, when they decided to send me to Brooklyn Heights in New York City in August of 1776 to brief General George Washington to retreat his troops from New York Harbor so that he would win the the Revolutionary War, they sent me there because they had already chronovised Washington's life to compare the chronovisor-based outcomes with what history knew from books, letters, diaries, pictures, and so forth, illustrations. And they said, wait a minute, Ray Ray Bishako's son Andrew is sitting there talking to General Washington. What are we going to do now, fellas? Are we going to send Andy to do that? And the answer they decided on was yes. Why? Because they were afraid that if they didn't do it, so it would be in the time-space continuum, the success of Washington of saving his revolutionary army by retreating it from New York Harbor would fall out of the time-space continuum. And we might have had a past where Washington was hanged as a traitor and the British still controlled the the new world. But the, the paradox of that is, wait a minute, which came first? Right. You know, in real time, they saw me briefing Washington. But in the fullness of time, they sent me after having memorized what I said there. So there really isn't a a, a solution to this problem. It's just the way the time-space continuum falls together. We found that you cannot send somebody back in time to change the past because they're not in a second iteration of the past. That's a major confusion that uh, modern uh, Americans have gotten from science fiction. Well, especially from movies, especially from movies. Movies give everybody the impression that you can use this uh, time-space issue and then move back and forth to for your own purposes without creating too much of a disturbance or even without creating a disturbance. Or only, uh, let me just say it this way, the craft of the writers is to make the disturbance something that can be factored in and worked on. But that's not apparently the way it works. You can't even come up with a solution. Well, you know, you can't use time travel to the past to change the past. You can only use time travel to the past to fulfill the past if you know what what it's going to be. So, for example, I didn't create a second past by telling Washington to retreat his troops. They saw me doing that. They had me memorize what I had to say. And I'm the reason Washington uh, retreated his troops. I mean, even David McCulloch, in his book, 1776, uh, published circa 2005, asked that question or, you know, made that Hmm. point. We still don't know why, as nightfall was approaching, General Washington decided to retreat his troops. Did somebody tell him to do so? Yeah, I did. And I was a school kid from Morris Plains, New Jersey, who was arriving in 1776, literally inside General Washington's tent, which was quite remarkable, actually. Um, in, in 1970, when I was in the third grade. So I still have discussions, even arguments with people who are interested in time travel. And I say, how could you be changing the past if the past you're going to is the original event? When I was photographed in the Josephine Cobb image of Lincoln at Gettysburg, I was there at the same time Lincoln was, or Lincoln's face couldn't be in a couple of pixels of, of the photograph in the far back of, of that photograph. Um, by, by what logic, by what methodology does one go to a second iteration of the past to create a different outcome? It doesn't exist, you see? So I think people have to kind of strive to get their mind around that. They have been woefully confused 
by science fiction, as you suggested, I think, because to have that element in science fiction, you can do all clever plot twists uh, and write a better screenplay if you can change the past and or play with the fact that there's going to be different versions of the past experiment with to create different outcomes. But that is not what we were doing. We were fulfilling the past, and that put a lot of responsibility on us. I knew if I didn't do uh, my demarche correctly that they had me memorized, the United States might not form because Washington might lose. You'd be, you know, as they, what was it? Benjamin Franklin said, if we don't, do not hang together, we will all hang separately. And they knew it. Their lives were on the line in hmm. deciding to uh, revolt from Britain and create a new nation with self-governance and so forth, not monarchical government. So this was really the pressure of the time travel to the past. I had to understand what I was to do and do it correctly. Well, Andrew, uh, I have to say this. You never failed to deliver. So this was a very, very uh, good, good program. And I, I think a lot of people, especially those people who feel like they've heard it all from Andrew D. Bajago, have not heard it all. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, I've kept back a lot. Uh, my book has 300 chapters. Oh. So I'd like to ask everybody to support <laughs> what I'm calling for, is let people whose lives are being saved via medical benefits paid for by the U.S. government, especially for those whose injuries were caused by the government in classified defense-related research and development programs like I was. Let them sell their books and their other uh, progeny of their of whatever their craft is, music, poetry, literature, whatever. Uh, my, my métier is uh, general interest nonfiction. What, which some people think is science fiction, but it's not. And let them earn their just reward for selling their work. But right now, that's not what America's doing. It's saying, well, you're getting Medicare or whatever. Therefore, you can't make any money. Why are we impoverishing the creativity? Why are we denying and blocking the creativity of Americans like that? But that is federal policy. So we have to change that. I'm going to be contacting some senators to try to correct that. It's a major defect in our common culture and our law. We're literally saying you're receiving medical benefits. We don't want you making any money or you should lose your benefits and pay for your medical benefits yourself. Well, I'm on dialysis because of stage four kidney failure. Where am I going to come up with a million dollars a year? 80% to med. Medicare and 20% to Medicaid, which is just the, the state gap filler that we all enjoy. To me, that's wrong. We should elevate and perpetuate the arts and sciences rather than block it by saying, oh, we're helping you. You're not going to make any of your own money. Why, did, why is that axiomatic? If the wonderful people of, of Maui are taking food to their neighbor's place because of that terrible fire, they wouldn't be saying, unless you need it, or if you pay me for this food, you know, three months from now. They're giving their largesse. They're opening up their hearts and their pantries for their brothers and sisters. We have to reclaim that spirit on a national level, because I am right now, I have written eight books about Pegasus, about Mars, and about various paranormal things I've experienced during my life. And yet I can't sell those books and maintain my Medicare and Medicaid payments. Well, at least the Medicaid payments. Medicare remains a right. But that, you know, with, with dialysis, that's $200,000 a year. Why should I work for a 20-year period on assembling all this information and then have to spend it on the dialysis that the program created. <laughs> okay. Um, I was given a, a disease that mimics diabetes. I was told that by a program's principal, which was Carl Jack Pruitt. And he said that all the kids who Tesla teleported are developing a disease that mimics diabetes in, in adulthood. 
And he said, we think it was the, the power source in the teleporters injured metabolic functioning. So it's not diabetes, but it certainly behaves like it. And the four systems that diabetes harm are the eyes, the veins, the heart, and the kidneys. I did nothing else in my life to damage my kidneys, but today I have to have dialysis three days a week. So I'm going to be working. I want all my friends and, and fans out there to know I'm going to be fighting because I have a right. I have a God-given right to express myself, and I have a right to tell what happened, and I have a right to earn the just desserts of my writing and all of my memory work and all the lecturing I did just to bring all the facts together. My current Project Pegasus memoir is 300 pages. My Mars Project memoir is 150 pages. It bears a forward by a distinguished American military leader. And I just think it's, it's a sacrilege that we're blocking the creativity of Americans who have been injured by the government and need Medicare and Medicaid. All right. Well, listen, uh, we are now out of time, Andrew. <laughs> but I wanted to thank you so much for coming here on the show. Um, it was a real pleasure to have you here, and I, I really want to do it again, and I hope that you'll do it too. Sure. I want to take this opportunity to thank all of you for watching and listening to the Timeless Voyager series podcast on video players like YouTube and audio players like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and, and many more. Now, one thing you can do to support the growth of Timeless Voyager is to hit that like button. Um, many of you hit the like button on Facebook. It's not the same. Hit the like button on the Timeless Voyager YouTube podcast. Share. Comment. Comments are fantastic. And, and please subscribe. You know, it really helps to keep the podcast on the Internet so that I can keep producing content like the program you've just watched and or listened to. Also, those uh, actions are very important because they trigger algorithms that help grow the Timeless Voyager channel. So there's no obligation, and the actions are free. My name is Bruce Stephen Holmes, and I hope your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one.